Dame Wigginton has been researching geoengineering since 2002. Since that time, he's established himself as one of the world's leading researchers in understanding different ways of weather modification and how that's been secretly applied by governments and corporations. He's here today on Exopolitics Today to tell us about his research, what it is that took him into this field, what's happening today in geoengineering, weather modification, and how all this relates to the field of exopolitics. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Welcome, Dane, to Exopolitics Today. Thank you for your willingness to address the climate engineering issue, Michael. Well, I know you've got a fascinating background, and uh, prior to 2002, you were working with the Bechtel organization, and you were a, a, a working with solar panels and the solar industry. So what was it that took you from that work into this geoengineering research and activism? Actually, my time in the employment of Bechtel Power goes back much further than that. I have not been with Bechtel for since the mid early 80s, but I did work on one of the first commercial solar plants in the continental US. It's now an empty field of blowing sand. Uh, that technology was not viable as much of the so-called green energy is not viable. And I'm off grid. So your listeners know my home is on the cover of the world's largest renewable energy magazine. I have solar, wind and hydropower. And it's certainly better than straight up carbon fuel burning. But these technologies are not going to save us from ourselves. And it's important people understand that. What brought me to the issue of geoengineering, I began to lose substantial amounts of my solar power uptake from whatever aircraft we're emitting and in our sky, 60, 70, 80% of my solar PV uptake, I knew that could not be just, quote, condensation. I began to test my precipitation, hoped I would not find climate engineering elements in it, but I did, starting with aluminum. Continued to test. Those levels continued to rise, and the ramifications were clear. If our skies were being sprayed with highly toxic nanoparticles of heavy metals, polymers, we have graphene now in our rain test, our most recent test. So quite simply... It was clear that if these programs were not exposed and halted, that everything we hold dear is in the balance. I know that uh, you run a very large wildlife preserve, uh, 1,600 acres or so, next to uh, Lake, Lake Shasta. So, um, yeah, how was that impacted? And how is that uh, looking today with uh, what's happening with the weather? Thank you for asking, because it's, it's absolutely devastated. So this is pristine, was pristine wilderness. And behind that, there's uh, about 2,000 square miles of wilderness. And going back 15 years, this was thriving habitat area. Bears, cougar, deers uh, were very plentiful, turkey. Um, in the last 15 to 18 years, the forest has largely gone silent. In fact, there was so much bird life here that when I slept on the forest floor, when I was trekking further into the wilderness, at first light, it was impossible to sleep because there were so many birds. Now it's deafeningly silent. We have many of the food sources like acorns or manzanita berries are producing almost nothing. Trees are dying throughout the forest. In fact, there's so many fir trees dying, Michael, that re most recent forestry study of Western 
primary conifer forest fir trees, they've, they called the study Firmageddon, referring to the catastrophic die-off of the primary tree, the fir tree. And although official agencies blame this die-off on the beetles, the beetles are only a symptom of a much larger problem. We have climate engineering elements, toxifying soils, waters, changing soil pH values. In the case of aluminum, which is a primary element, again, showing up on our rain test in extraordinarily high quantities. And that's toxic to root systems, causes trees to shut down nutrient uptake. They die a slow protracted death. Engineering operations and radio frequency transmissions that go with them are destroying the ozone layer. That's frying the trees from the top down. We have what would, we would consider the epitome of human insanity, Michael, the intentional and extremely destructive intervention in Earth's life support systems. And that's what climate engineering is. It's weather warfare. I'm glad you, you mentioned that because uh, uh, there's a speech that President Johnson gave in 1962. And I know you've uh, played that a lot on your website, but I just wanted to play that uh, now for my audience so that they can see what it was that President Johnson said in 1962 that directly relates to this idea of weather warfare. So if we can play that video. It lays the predicate and the foundation for the development of a weather satellite that will permit man to determine the world's cloud layer and ultimately to control the weather, and he who controls the weather will control the world. That will permit man to determine the world's cloud layer, and he who controls the weather will control the world. So, yeah, tell us about that video. How incredibly damning is that? 61 years ago, we have that kind of admission from former U.S. President Lyndon Johnson, and people today still want to pretend that these programs are only proposals. In fact, we have the entire so-called climate science community continuing to pretend that geoengineering is something they could, may, might do someday when anyone who's not clinically blind can see these programs going on. And if we look at what, what we've warned about at geoengineeringwatch.org for the entire length of our existence is that this equation is so nonlinear that once we get in to a cascading collapse scenario, and we are there now, that the speed at which ecosystems around the globe will implode will be blinding. It's happening right now. And this is what it's so perplexing that so many with this information available, they choose to ignore it. They choose to feed their normalcy bias and pretend that somehow if they just elect the right candidate or they just pass the right law or legislation that somehow everything will magically work out. And that's not the trajectory we are on. We're going to hit the wall. These programs are determining our collective fate, Michael, by the day. Yeah, I was astounded by that speech. I mean, uh, that uh, President Johnson said that back in uh, 62. I mean, he was vice president at the time, but here he is openly acknowledging that uh, there was this understanding that uh, weather modification was possible through satellites and who, whoever controlled the weather controlled the world. So you can be sure uh, that that has been happening since 62. Now, yes. your, your, your website actually has an incredible number of documents uh, substantiating that this weather modification goes way back and even goes back to 1891. And you've got a one of your pages uh, shows a list of patents going back to 1891. So do you want to talk about... Uh, the, the patents that exist showing weather modification actually having this kind of uh, origin? Well, certainly this is 
a record of the focus in this arena. And as far as the functionality of some of these patents, we have film footage, even going back to 19, I think 21, of biplanes with patented spray dispersion mechanisms in there. We have the actual film footage of these planes flying in formation and dispersing. Even going into World War II, Michael, you've maybe heard some try to defend the false narrative that this is just condensation we're seeing because they refer to the World War II bombers that left these massive trails behind them. We found on U.S. military archives, we found footage of B-17s flying in formation. The film footage was taken from one B-17 of other B-17s, dispersing massive trails behind them and then shutting off instantly as if it had been cut with a knife. Plane didn't fall out of the sky. It didn't kill its engines. It was clearly dispersing materials and they would have had to have been beta testing in World War II because we know these programs were launched immediately after World War II. In fact, we have Project Cirrus, the U.S. military's commencement of manipulating hurricanes. That happened in 1947. So, it, and people would ask, we still astoundingly hear this, why would the military want to manipulate the weather? And the, the answer to that is, why wouldn't they? Of course they do. This is a, a crown jewel weapon of the military industrial complex, and they can and have been bringing populations to their knees for their own purposes and agendas without those populations ever even knowing they're under assault. And it's happening right now today. We can speculate as to the agendas and objectives, but for example, the cutting off of precipitation to many agricultural regions, California for the last decade plus, with the exception of this winter, we had toxic precipitation, but we see a systematic targeting of agricultural producing regions all over the world, flash drought, flash flood, flash freezing, depending on the season, massive hailstones, which is indicative of chemical ice nucleation for weather modifications. So this is not an accident. It's beyond anything that could be considered coincidence. They're targeting agricultural production. And I would argue for those that still don't understand why, they think those in power are here to help us and to help us proliferate even more and consume even more. That's not why they're here. Those in power see populations as a rapidly rising liability to them. People need to connect that dot. And let's add this one final statement. Zygmunt Brzezinski, advisor to U.S. Presidents, presidents from Johnson all the way up to 2017, I think, when he passed away. Zygmunt Brzezinski said on the record that with today's technology, it's easier to kill a million people than to control them. Quote, unquote, word for word. I think listeners need to plug that into the equation. Those in power are not here to help. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. What is what is the intent behind this? Um, I, I would like to come back to that. But first, uh, I'd like to just kind of like you know, just give my listeners an idea of just how far back in time and how well this weather modification um, study has been uh, conducted by uh, government agencies. Now, I know on your website, uh, there's a 1966 paper on a recommended national program in weather, weather modification. So, can, yeah, tell us about that. It's one document of many. We have, in fact, we have a U.S. Senate document that's 800 pages long. That's from the late 70s that outlines the global cooperation in these programs even then that specifically cites intergovernmental cooperation, even between governments with otherwise adversarial relations, i.e. China, Russia, U.S., because you can't just geoengineer over your own country. Those who actually rule all of these countries, the controllers of the matrix, if you will, they know that 
on the trajectory of loot, plunder, pillage, and pollute until there's nothing left, which they should know because they're most responsible for this paradigm, that we would hit the wall at full velocity. And that time is now. So they've been preparing for this to thin the herd, destroy food production so that populations can't feed themselves. Uh, uh, that makes populations struggle to make it day to day. So they can't really focus on who's doing this to them and how to combat that, if you will. So again, we have a population, Michael, that's been largely completely asleep at the wheel that needs to change. And they need to understand in the documentation, like you just thankfully brought up, there are mountains and mountains of irrefutable documents, film footage. We have lab tests from all over the globe. There's no rational disputing that these programs have been deployed. And yet we still have the so-called climate science community pretending that if things get bad enough, we might have to deploy this last ditch effort to save the planet. And here's my response to that. We've been doing it over 75 years. We face near-term planetary omnicide. So how's, how is this final saving potential mechanism going so far? It's, it's pounding the nails into our collective coffin and they're using it for a weapon. It was never intended to be anything benevolent, never. Well, you know, that takes us to the intention behind this, uh, weather modification um, and, and the different facilities that are, that are used. Now, one of these um, technologies that is used are these ionospheric heaters, like the HARP facility in Alaska. So, uh, you know, what research did you do into the HARP facility and similar facilities around the planet? Very important question. Great image you have shown there. And that is a weapon of mass destruction. That's an ionosphere heater, as you correctly stated. It can transmit about three and a half million watts of power in a focus beam. The wattage goes far higher still. And when that's transmitted into the electrically conductive and electrically reactive ionosphere, it causes an electrical chain reaction, which heats the ionosphere to extraordinarily high temperatures. That pushes the atmosphere up and down. The downward push of the atmosphere on the surface fuels what's known as a high pressure heat dome. And that's a term we hear now all the time from the so-called weather forecasters. And the weather forecasters are simply script readers at this point, literally. We know that Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, private defense contractors, Raytheon, in fact, neck deep in the heart program, Lockheed Martin, the same, both involved with climate engineering. They do all the weather modeling for the nation's weathermen, National Weather Service and NOAA. Why would we need private defense contractors to model the weather for the nation's weathermen because it's a script. It's the scheduled weather, literally. So in the case of HARP, the high pressure heat dome, which we now see in many locations around the globe, this is used to steer the upper level wind currents, which steers the moisture currents. But underneath that dome, we have scorchingly hot temperatures that don't cool off at night. And with that heat dome, Michael, they can and are pushing smoke down on the surface, smoke from the Canadian wildfires, holding it on the surface for days and days and days, incredibly toxic mix. And we know that they are spraying on top of those smoke canopies because we have time-lapse film footage to prove it. Now, one of the things that uh, I'm fascinated by is this um, connection between weather modification technologies and uh, weapons. Uh, that can be used against um, aerial vehicles. Like I, I know that uh, scalar weapons have been studied by the U.S. military and the Soviet Union for, for decades, starting in the 60s and 70s. I know you, you're probably very familiar with the work of uh, Thomas 
uh, Bearden, Colonel Thomas Bearden, uh, on scalar weapons. So, you know, what's the connection between scalar weapons and ionospheric heaters? Well, certainly all it is part of, just in, in a general summary, using the atmosphere as a, as a physics lab to experiment. So in, in the case of the frequency transmissions from other facilities on the ground, there are different types of transmitters, different types of facilities. We have SBX radar, uh, C-based X-band radar, which is a, a transmission facility for weather modification. And they can manipulate these particulates with these facilities. In fact, the most stunning examples is hurricane manipulation, hurricane steering. And I would encourage your listeners to search geoengineeringwatch.org hurricanes and look at the what we captured of these frequencies interacting with storms like Hurricane Harvey, uh, Hurricane Ian, and Michael. We can actually see the transmissions which have a repelling effect on, an, on a storm system that's been saturated with these electrically conductive elements. It has a repelling effect, so they can push that storm in different directions. Or in the case of, for example, Hurricane Harvey, they were able to hold that storm from coming on shore, keeping it in place so it rained out 50 inches of rain on Texas. And they knew that, Michael, seven days in advance. They knew that would happen. How could they possibly know that? Because that was the scheduled weather. And if, if your listeners search again, geoengineeringwatch.org, Hurricane Harvey, they can see the actual recordings of these transmissions interacting with the storm circulation and holding it from coming on shore. It's very profound. So all of these elements all combine to a very, very dangerous, dire scenario that is literally tearing apart the planet's life support systems. So how many of these ionospheric uh, heaters are around the planet at any one time? We believe there's as many as 100. There are different designs, different capabilities. HARP is the largest of all, but by no means the only one. And we have the uh, NEXRAD system, which is a network that's most visible in some U.S. mapping that we have. And these systems are completely coordinated. They, they can push and pull storm systems in, across the U.S., for example. We've recorded much of this. And what we'll see is the if they want a storm to go a certain direction across the U.S., the transmitters in front of that storm will de-energize, which allows the storm to move in that direction. Transmitters behind the storm will energize, which has a repelling effect, again, and tends to push that atmospheric air mass. So this is, this is hard science, patented science. It's been around for a very long time. And unfortunately, too many in the population have been trained to believe this is all just some sort of future science fiction scenario. And it's interesting, the same people who can talk on their black box they hold in their hand to someone on the other side of the world, they don't have any trouble believing that. But to believe that we can manipulate the weather, they simply don't want to fit that into the reality because it's, it's frightening for many people. So they choose not to face it. But face it, we must, Michael, or our days are numbered. Yeah, very important. Uh, I know that there's this uh, giant radar uh, well, I guess it's not a radar array, but it's a neutrino detector array in Antarctica, which is called Ice Cube. It's, I think, mm -hmm. 20 square miles um, in you know, the whole thing. The array is massive. And, and so some people who have uh, actually worked there uh, at the Ice Cube facility believe that it is also engaged in this kind of weather modification and ionospheric heating in, in addition to kind of like playing this role in detecting neutrinos coming in and out of uh, the, the South Pole. So, yeah, well, what do you know about the Ice Cube neutrino detector and, and it possibly being part of this kind of 
global system of ionospheric heaters and kind of like scalar weapon arrays. I think that it is. I think data indicates that it is. And we see some very profound examples. John Kerry, during a presidential election, during the election, flew to Antarctica, then flew back to Christchurch, New Zealand, taking U.S. diplomats with him. He flew out shortly afterward. And hours later, there was a very devastating quake in Christchurch. It's not the only example. We see the same thing happening, for example, in Haiti. U.S. diplomats pulled out hours before a devastating quake hit. We have the, the Fukushima scenario, the Japanese earthquake in 2011. What we have there are institutions like MIT. And most of your listeners, I'm sure, know who MIT is, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They acknowledge on the record, and your listeners can look this up, extremely anomalous atmospheric heating directly above the epicenter for the Japanese quake in 2011 for three days prior to that quake. That's indicative of an ionosphere heater's transmission being bounced off a reflective atmosphere. And again, the climate engineering dispersed elements are can form that type of a reflective surface. And when that transmission is beamed back down into Earth's strata in a seismically sensitive region, they can cause seismic activity. And that is a very accepted scientific consensus. To add further to this, General Bert Stubblebein, he's the highest ranking U.S. military officer to ever speak out about what really happened on 9-11. And General Bert was a personal friend. And what he told me before he passed away under rather dubious circumstances he told me that the Fukushima quake or the Japanese quake was intended. Jap Japan was allying with its regional partners. That was a shot across their bow that the Fukushima meltdown was not intended. But when you trigger 9.0, bad things happen. And that's, again, all of these puzzle pieces fit together. So the fact that our military has these types of weapons of mass destruction should come as no surprise. And the fact that they very aggressively deny the existence of these weapons should also come as no surprise. Well, I know that this devastating earthquake in Turkey that, that happened earlier this year with, I think, over 50,000 people died, it happened just before the elections, uh, just several months before the Turkish elections, and uh, the, the President uh, Erdogan, who the deep state has been targeting, uh, you know, he barely survived because this uh, earthquake just made him... Uh, so unpopular, the response of the Turkish authorities. So I think that's another example you could add to your list of uh, pro prime suspects for this I would completely agree with you. Completely agree. In fact, that was months before the elections. It was only days after Erdogan, Erdogan uh, made clear that he was not going to have anything to do with NATO. And uh, so, I, I mean, we, we see these circumstances that can't be written off as coincidence. And... Uh, Again, on some of these occasions, even on Turkey as well, you have some that recorded the atmospheric flashing that we would expect to have with powerful transmissions of this type. And again, all these all these puzzle pieces fit together. Exceptional example you brought up, and I would completely agree with you. Okay, one one of the things that uh, is very intriguing about this whole phenomenon of weather modification technologies, uh, these different radar arrays, half facilities, the ice cube neutrino, is that, yes, one, one application is to uh, be used as weather modification. Um, there's, and there's also another application, which is to shoot down craft that are visiting our planet or shoot down uh, satellites or spacecraft 
from a rival nation. So, um, you know, that's one thing that I'd like you to maybe address. Uh, to what extent could these ionospheric uh, uh, heaters and kind of like um, these weather modification technologies be used as a weapon system against visiting spacecraft, whether we're talking about extraterrestrial life, whether we're talking about uh, secret space programs from other nations, you know, there's a, it seems that they could be used for more than one purpose. Well, I would certainly agree they're being used for far more than one purpose. In fact, we can't even begin to know the full extent of the capability of these weapons of mass destruction. So when they're ionizing the atmosphere with these electrically conductive particulates, that sets the stage for the launching of potentially devastating EMP attacks, offense and defense. And if you're putting that kind of shockwave through the atmosphere, uh, it would have very detrimental effects to any flying anything. So yes, I, I think again, the degree to which that they are derailing and dismantling the planet's remaining life support systems can't be overstated. And, and to add another dimension to this, we're breathing with their spraying. That's a very fundamental element. Whatever anyone chooses to believe on these programs, the capability with weather manipulation, weather warfare, there is no arguing that the elements that they spray in the sky will come to the surface. Our lab tests prove that. We took a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration flying lab to altitude in our film, The Dimming, all of it on film, on the record, top scientists in that aircraft. We collected samples from what was being emitted from the heavy aircraft, processed that at RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic in New York, found what we knew we would find, climate engineering elements. So we're breathing incredibly toxic nanoparticles of aluminum, barium, strontium, manganese, polymer fibers, surfactants, graphene, all these elements toxic in and of themselves. When you combine them, you get synergistic toxicity, which makes the overall toxicity exponentially worse. When I say exponentially, in the case of aluminum and mercury, toxicity goes up when those two are combined as much as 10,000%, 100 times worse. And the size of these particles, Michael, is very important because you remember with all the New York and or the East Coast smoke, air quality dangers, you remember that, right? And, and what do they talk about? PM 2.5, 2.5 microns and how dangerous those particles were. What did they never mention at all? The nanoparticles that are coming down to that air column because they're not testing for any of that and that's not an accident. They don't want the public to know about any of this. So this mountain of most toxic elements of all goes completely unreported. And to give your listeners an idea how small these nanoparticles are, you can fit up to 100,000 100,000 across the width of a single human hair. They're inconceivably small, and that makes them much more bioavailable, much more bioaccumulative. We're all inhaling them with every breath. They're building up in our system. So again, we need to look at that aspect of these programs also in regard to the overall threat they pose. One of the uh, issues that I was very interested in was uh, something that happened uh, during Hurricane Irma. And I remember following some of your work during Hurricane Irma, um, and, and you certainly pointed to data showing uh, how that hurricane was steered towards the Florida coast in, uh, what was it, 2017, as I, I recall. And, and one of the things that I'm interested in is whether or not Hurricane Irma uh, was steered by some kind of MESA satellites because uh, 
some of the sources that I was citing at the time were saying that MESA satellites were used as these kind of uh, ionospheric heaters to steer hurricanes, just as you say. So, um, and 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 the view was that rather than uh, using ha uh, the HARP facility in Alaska and uh, similar kind of um, uh, ionospheric heaters around the world, that more and more they were using satellite-based mazes for this kind of uh, ionospheric heating and steering of hurricanes. So have you know anything about that? What we have to rely on are the images that we're we have data sources to capture, and those are ground-based transmission facilities. So although it is likely that they have air, atmospheric capabilities as well, what we can say definitively and what we can prove is that ground-based facilities are absolutely involved with the steering of these cyclones. And that is, again, well-documented. It's not disputable. So we rely on that, but the likelihood of them having atmospheric facilities is, is very high, Michael. So we wouldn't argue that possibility at all. Well, you know, clearly, um, you know, we're having things like Starlink uh, deploying up to 30,000 kind of small satellites up there and, and Starlink's not the only one. So, so the Earth, um, the orbit of the Earth is being saturated with all of these uh, uh, satellites and of course you know you know we we, we only know a, a little bit about what what the real purpose is yes. i mean sure the, the ostensible purpose is satellite surveillance and gps and uh, communications but you know given what your research has shown and the kind of normal progression of technological development i think it would be logical to assume that uh, at some point the the various militaries and corporations realized that the future of weather modification was not so much in building more and more, uh, more of these ground-based uh, weather modification facilities, but using satellite-based uh, weather modification technology. So yeah, can you speak to that? I, I would completely concur with your line of thought. I agree with you. I mean, that would make logic, that would be a logical deduction given all that we know. Completely agree. So, you know, that takes me to the case of uh, this town, Paradise, uh, California, uh, that was uh, destroyed by uh, wildfires. Uh, we, we have an image that I just wanted to kind of share with you that's pretty startling in terms of well, what happened. Now, is this an example of um, some kind of uh, satellite-based directed energy weapon being used against this town? We know of no technology that would allow that kind of power to come from anywhere in orbit. And to add to this, what's very key to understand with, the, with that line of thought, if there's any particulate matter in the air, laser anything doesn't work. It can't work. Even laser targeting for military operations in the Middle East and so forth, there's sand in the air from a sandstormer. You can't have obstructions in the air column for laser anything to work. So that that narrative, I would argue, has some serious flaws in it. Now, that being said, of course, a scene like this is perplexing to people when a whole neighborhood is gone and many of the trees are still standing. And there are a lot of potential factors to consider here. And we have seen with, with commercial buildings as well that burnt in some of these fires that had no fuel around them. One, 
with smart meters, could a, could a smart meter be used to start a fire intentionally in some of these urban areas? Yes, it absolutely could be. In fact, we have lawsuits going on right now with smart meter started fires, whether that's a malfunction or some other aspect we, we can't prove. I, I, and I know, and again, those aren't our lawsuits, but we know these lawsuits are ongoing. Two, when you have the winds that happened in the Paradise Fire, and I witnessed that from my location, we, we filmed that specific fire. We have time-lapse film footage of blanket aerosol spraying being done directly over the smoke canopy for that specific fire. Why would they spray incendiary materials on top of the smoke bank that are going to settle down through the smoke bank and, and further fuel those flames? Again, we can speculate as to agendas and objectives, but these are incendiary materials and they were spraying over that fire. And we have the kind of winds that we had during that fire, 60 plus mile an hour winds. If you have one structure start, you have a bellows effect that creates immense heat and a horizontal flame. And that would certainly go through and, and torch any immediate structure. And it can burn under the story. In those neighborhoods, a lot of the fuel has been taken off the ground. So you don't have a fuel ladder. So sometimes you'll see the canopies are not burnt, but the houses are. Again, and I'm not trying to excuse this away. These fires are, I would argue, completely connected to climate engineering, nefarious operations, the creation of high pressure heat domes that, again, push down in the atmosphere, can hold that heat and smoke down, can create surface winds. All of that is a part of this equation. And in regard to the connection with climate engineering and wildfires, I would really encourage your listeners to search this specific title, Wildfires Serve Geoengineering Agenda. We have science study that advocates for the burning, intentional burning of northern latitude forests to mimic the temporary cooling effects of a volcano. They put so much particulate matter in the air that it provides temporary cooling for up to several months, depending on how inten intensely the fires burn. Let's add to this equation. Geoengineeringwatch.org also found a U.S. military document, 140 pages long, titled Forest Fires as a Military Weapon. That's alarming enough. Next in that document, there was about a dozen and a half specific study zones for these operations inside the, the North American continent. Why would that be? In fact, one of those locations was Mount Shasta, named in this document. If that doesn't alarm you, it should. And again, for those who still naively think that those who run our government are here to help, time to wake up. They are absolutely concerned about their own existence, their own stranglehold on power, and they will, they will burn down this entire planet so they can rule the ashes. That's how desperate they are. Now, you, you talked about, uh, um, I think it was World War II, you, you, you cited uh, uh, footage, film footage you had of these uh, bombers that could switch the um, chemicals that they were uh, emitting out of their exhausts uh, on and off and to distinguish between chemtrails and contrails. So today, I mean, just how significant are chemtrails in terms of just doing this uh, detrimental, having this detrimental effect on the environment, not only in the United States, but uh, well, and that's a that's another that's a follow up question. Um, is it concentrated in the United States? Do you have the same degree of chemtrails occurring in other countries? It is certainly a global scenario. Again, global cooperation. In the case of the United States, we do have one aspect that we can note 
that is a reflection of the size of the U.S. military. Since we have the U.S. military being bigger than the next 10 biggest militaries combined, and the U.S. military has three times more aerosol atmospheric tankers than all other militaries in the world combined. So what we see in regard to surface temperatures for a 10-year stretch from 2012 to 2022, we saw the most anomalously less warm area for that 10-year period in the entire world was the eastern half of the U.S. lower 48 states. That's the most populated portion of the U.S. was the most anomalously less warm region in the entire world. That's not nature. That's climate engineering. And we have chemical ice nucleation operations. That's the spraying, the spray dispersion of endothermic reacting elements. Those are patented processes. You brought up the patents earlier. This, is, this causes ice nucleation to happen far sooner and at far higher temperatures than it would naturally occur. Thus, Michael, you've seen, I'm sure, that so many extreme hailstorms are happening now, not just the frequency, but the size of the hailstones. And that's indicative of, of climate intervention operations and chemical ice nucleation for cloud seeding. I would encourage your listeners to search search uh, Lake Michigan ice balls and look at the images. They're shocking. 75 pound perfectly spherical ice balls on the shores of the Great Lakes. That's ice nucleation over the Great Lakes that causes that phenomenon. If your listeners searched the engineering winter section on the homepage of geoengineeringwatch.org, they would be astounded at that aspect of climate engineering to, to cool those surface temperatures down. So uh, from every aspect, again, these programs are the epitome of human insanity, greatest and most immediate threat we face short of nuclear cataclysm. And even then, these programs increase that threat because they're destroying the atmosphere, leaving us susceptible to a strong CME or coronal mass ejection, which, by the way, they could launch such an attack, Michael, and blame it on the sun. That's something we should think about because this, all, the purpose of these programs is to blame their destruction on nature. But if we have a large CME that causes grids to shut down all over the world, we have Fukushima power type power plants. We have 442 of them, I believe, globally. They would not be able to cool themselves. Now we have meltdowns everywhere. Game over. So what's the, the real goal here behind uh, those that are responsible for these kinds of weather modification technologies? Now, I, I know the Georgia Guidestones, uh, you know, they were up for for several several decades, standing there, and they were they had, they clearly had this agenda that uh, Earth's population uh, needed to be reduced to 500 million in order for the planet to be sustainable. So, it was is that was that the real goal? Is that one of the purposes behind uh, this geoengineering agenda that global elites have been involved in? That they want to reduce the population down to 500 million? Again, you are completely on target, in our opinion, based on all our years of research. That's that's the most core aspect of this scenario, that the planet and its, its failing life support systems can no longer support populations. And those in power would certainly know this, wouldn't they? Because they're the ones most responsible for creating this paradigm to begin with. So, yes, this is about thinning the herd, retaining power and control using weather as a weapon so they can blame it on nature. And, and again, it's, I can't overemphasize the danger posed by these particles themselves for human health. Not only are they highly toxic, as I mentioned earlier, in and of themselves, but we know in the case of two of these elements, polymer fibers and graphene, that these elements are used in biological warfare as biological carrier platforms. And that means that they can carry a pathogen from the clouds to the ground. 
And we have the world's second most recognized climate engineer, Dr. Ken Caldera, former Department of Defense scientist. Geoengineering Watch owns an audio of him stating in his own words that one of the things he did for the DOD was to design ways of spraying pathogens into clouds to infect the populations below. He now works for Bill Gates. And if we have something much more lethal show up like Marburg or Ebola, the hemorrhagic fevers, those in power, if they feel they're really losing control, if they disperse something much more lethal, they can bring this game to an end overnight, literally. Well, you know, this, this raises uh, the, the question as to, um, you know, who could be behind this? Is it just the global elite or is there something else? I mean, of course, people talk about um, um, a, a cabal and Illuminati that, are, that have been pulling the, the planetary, uh, control, controlling the, the planet for, for decades or centuries. Uh, but one of the things that uh, I, I've been looking at is the kind of involvement of off-planet intelligence. And, uh, you know, that's something that uh, the U.S. Congress is now starting to pay attention to. Now, the Congress has, uh, the U.S. Senate just, just passed an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act for 2024, where they introduce a UAP Disclosure Act for 2023. So we have a, a page, uh, an image of that, um, just just that legislation. So so now Congress is actually looking at this um, uh, UAP UFO phenomenon and and looking at how far back it goes and what the records show. So you know, and this is I know speculation uh, for you, but you know, would it surprise you if? off-planet intelligences were involved in these geoengineering efforts? Let me phrase that carefully. Let me answer that carefully. Yes, it would surprise me because we, we have a very clear record of humans behaving poorly in these programs all the way back. And saying that, am I saying that I think we're alone in the universe? I'm not saying that. I feel much like Carl Sagan. I, I It's would be a terrible waste of space if there was no one there. And I can only imagine, again, this is out of my wheelhouse, but that if there was another intelligence that had survived its own success, as it looks like the human race is not going to at this point, but if such an intelligence was able to cross the galaxy and to get here and to observe us, I, would, I can only imagine they would be benevolent because otherwise they would have exterminated themselves long ago. And perhaps they would wonder, is a species like ours even worth saving when we're so incredibly self-destructive? But in regards to these programs themselves, we have a very, very clear record of human motivation, human agenda for purposes of power and control that have now gone completely out of control. These programs are completely out of control. I would equate this, Michael, to a headless, heartless, soulless cancer that has only its objective to expand and proliferate its control. And just like a cancer eventually kills its host, that's what we face now. We're not dealing with sanity. And, and even that cancer itself seems to be fraying apart different components of that cancer, infighting within the cancer, if you will. And that's an even more dangerous recipe. And if there's a nuclear exchange, and we have this, this is how insane it is at this moment. We have people in high circles of power, even in Washington, openly discussing what they see as a benefit of a limited nuclear exchange to put enough particulate matter into the atmosphere to provide temporary cooling. That is the epitome of human insanity. If there's any nuclear exchange at all, 
that ionizing radiation that would enter the atmosphere on top of all the damage already done would strip away, it would start a process of stripping away what's left of the atmosphere. And that puts us solidly on track for what's known as Venus syndrome. And that's not a metaphor. Your listeners can research geoengineeringwatch.org Venus syndrome. That means a cascading collapse scenario of the planet's life support systems that in unimaginably short timeframes would turn this planet into a true sister to Venus, lifeless, scorched ball of rock, no life. And that is the trajectory we are on. Well, um, we've already kind of like uh, established uh, that weather modification technologies are used, have been weaponized uh, and used for geopolitics. You know, we've talked yes. about Erdogan and, and we know about Johnson, uh, his, his statement. But, but what about um, weather modification being used in exopolitics? And you know, there we're talking about uh, the, the politics of secret space programs um, and kind of like non-human intelligence. Now, there's one case that I just wanted you to kind of comment on, and that and that involves um, someone that I was working with, um, in, and he was involved uh, with uh, taking photographs at MacDill Air Force Base in 2017. So I just want to show an, one of the images of the, um, no, not that one, uh, the image of Hurricane Irma and MacDill Air Force Base. And um, we'll just show you that image. So this is a guy uh, who was a civilian at the time. Currently, oh, it's the wrong, wrong one. Uh, we'll get it eventually. Um, he is currently um, uh, serves with the U.S. Army, and uh, he was taking photographs of these triangle-shaped vehicles uh, in the vicinity of MacDill Air Force Base in early September 2017. And uh, and and uh, what he was actually being encouraged to do so by covert personnel stationed out of McDill. Okay, this is this is just a testimony of one person. He's got photographs backing up his claims. Just show the other photograph there, Jazz. Now, uh, now what happened was that on September uh, September ten and September eleven, two thousand and seventeen. Hurricane Irma hit that same area and MacDill Air Force Base was shut down. And, and I kind of like addressed that question in those articles back at the time, saying that, well, is this an example of weather modification being used in exopolitics? That is, when one faction um, is using technologies against another faction involved in these secret space programs uh, because they're doing something that, um, they dislike. So in, you, you have people in, at McDill at special, special operations uh, releasing information and encouraging a civilian to take photographs of these anti-gravity spacecraft and another faction, the global controllers, are very unhappy so they steer this, this uh, hurricane to McDill and, and for the first time in its history, uh, McDill Air Force Bay uh, Air Force Base had to be shut down and evacuated. And this all happened on September 11, 2017. So I just wanted you to, you know, speculate if you if you can, whether weather modification can and is being used in this kind of like rarefied world of exopolitics. Certainly no way for me to state that definitively, but what we can state definitively that these programs are not benign, they're malevolent, there are, again, there's, there's 
either actively or passively, nations all over the world are colluding and cooperating with these. And that may be breaking down, which may make the, the situation even worse, where now we have, instead of a coordinated climate intervention insanity, now it's completely haphazard, even, even worse on a larger scale. And, and we have nations that haven't participated in this either, Michael. For example, Iran has been on the floor of the UN stating publicly although U.S. media didn't cover it, that NATO was cutting off their precipitation. If you cut off the precipitation, you control the food supplies, you destable the population, you make that country much easier to manipulate. And how long has that been happening? For example, even in parts of Africa, where the U.S. has so many bases in Africa, they have the AFRICOM U.S. Military Command Center, and these nations have had their precipitation cut off. Their governments have then been forced, I would argue, to cooperate with the U.S. government and we're back to the, the covert weapon that has been used for very clear purposes of human power and control by the global predator parasite class, if you will. And we, we just have such a long interconnected chain of these events. And again, if, if there are specific manipulations of weather like those which you just described, the, the operations within the continental U.S. would still have to be a part of that in some manner because you couldn't have that kind of operation being conducted from another country over our country without our military not knowing about it and being a part of it. So it's, it's hard to, it's impossible for us to know the degree to which there's overlap with these, with these operations between other countries. I mean, there's certain aspects of this we can't know and define, but the fact that these operations are ongoing, that they're wreaking havoc with the planet's life support systems, that they're crushing food supplies, that we can say definitively, and we stand on that at geoengineeringwatch.org. Well, I know you've uh, produced uh, several documentaries. Uh, the last was uh, The Dimming. So you, you want to tell us about the, the importance of uh, this documentary for educating people about the, the kind of threats we face as a planet if no action is taken to kind of like address and produce transparency and accountability in, in how these weather modification technologies are used in the U.S. and around the world. Thank you for bringing up that effort of geoengineeringwatch.org. We, we've spent a tremendous amount of resource on the making of that film and a tremendous amount of energy. We made it available for free to the public the moment it was done. We have in that film testimony from U.S. Air Force generals, two of them, uh, U.S. presidential cabinet members, former Canadian minister of defense, Canadian premiers, we have top scientists, former U.S. government scientists. There's so many very credible individuals in there, plus the atmospheric testing we did. It is conclusive proof that climate intervention operations, a.k.a. weather warfare, are absolutely being conducted on an inconceivably massive scale. And, Michael, how many people don't even notice we don't have blue skies anymore? At best, you might get a pale blue sky on some days if you look straight up. If you look toward the wider horizon, you see this dirty, dingy white. You can barely make out cloud formations over distant mountains because there's so much haze in the air. And again, we are trying to bring to light, and that's what that film was for, the fact that we are under an all-out assault by those in power. And those in power, ultimately, it's those who print the money. The occupant of the White House means nothing. It's those who control the printing of money. They control militaries, thus they control countries. And if, if we allow this trajectory to continue, we are done. And I don't mean decades out. We are on an extremely short-term horizon. If we look at habitat die-off, wildlife die-off, we've lost 70% plus conservatively in the last 40 plus years. Insect populations down 80 to 90% 
terrestrial and aquatic insects. We lose the insects, we lose everything, obviously. We have plankton populations down 90% in the Atlantic. Other oceans are not far behind. We have superheating ocean temperatures now. We had temperatures just recorded in Florida officially 97 degrees. Ocean temperatures of 97 degrees. That's jacuzzi water level. Unofficially 100 degrees. Nothing can live in that. We have a thermal energy buildup on the planet right now that is equivalent to the heat contained in seven Hiroshima bombs per second. Most of that has gone into the oceans, but now it's entering the atmosphere. We have, again, the desperation of burning down forests around the globe. It appears to be an agenda of the geoengineers. However those fires start, that's a secondary subject. What lays the temp template for those fires to burn with such ferocity? And that is climate engineering, it's cutting off the moisture to the forest, poisoning the forest floors, what we covered already. 560 out of control fires burning in Canada right now, 560. So the bottom line is we are on the fast track to a lifeless planet. And the moment, and here's the big precarious part of this, and I'll give it back to you. The moment the power structure can't hide the totality of what's unfolding from populations, the moment the normalcy bias delusion is shattered, that's when things get Mad Max very quickly. And I would argue we are very close to that moment when that moment comes, the power structure will likely play very big cards. Our reality will go upside down at blinding speed. And again, there's so many factors past the breaking point right now. That moment could be tomorrow, could be two weeks, two months. It's not going to be long. So what's it going to take to reverse this? I mean, is this something that any one nation can, can deal with? I mean, is it something that, for example, the U.S. Congress could convene hearings on geo? Uh, engineering and weather modification and, and reining that in. Um, you know, what, what, what needs to be done to stop this kind of train wreck from happening? Well, I, I would argue that based on all available data, we passed the point of no return from the planet we've known at least two decades ago. We will never in any time frame that matters have the planet that we once had. And, and what kind of time frames am I alluding to? If we look at past extinction events, uh, the, the Petum event 55 million years ago was a mass extinction that's not nearly as severe as what's happening now. What's happening now is happening far faster, which makes it far worse. And the equilibrium period then was about 10 to 20 million years. That's a long time. So I, we have to accept that. And that's what most people don't want to accept. They don't want to accept that the party is over. And I can't say otherwise. I can't so many environmental documentaries or the so-called green community that always ends with a, a completely fantasy fiction notion that if we just drive an electric car and get some solar panels, we'll all live happily ever after. And that's absolutely not reality. It's not true. What I'm arguing is that we have to decide why are we here? Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's our point? What will we do in the time we have? And I would argue there's no greater calling than to decide that we're going to be a part of the cure, going to do everything we can to salvage some part of the planet's life support system so that someone might make it through what's coming and the human race might rise to a higher level, maybe a level at which if there's some extra terrestrial intelligence in the atmosphere that they might decide that we might be worth saving, salvaging, helping. But at, at this point, our species must look like to any outside intelligence, like a completely self-destructive, self-absorbed, oblivious to their own fate and future species. And uh, that's, that's a very pitiful state. We have to alter that state. Our purpose here isn't to pursue personal pleasures until our last breath. It's to make a difference for the better. And I would argue that there's no greater calling than that, no greater source of solace than that. 
that's a, that's a very kind of a dire prediction there. Um, so people really need to start taking action at a, at a personal level, maybe moving out of cities and kind of densely packed urban areas that are engaged in this kind of like um, aiding and abetting this environmental destruction by, by different consumption patterns and, and moving into rural areas, kind of living more in nature, in harmony. Is, is that kind of like part of the solution here? And, and hopefully that'll all kind of build together? If we don't stop what's happening in our skies, along with all the other forms of highly destructive human activity, because there are so many forms, we're cutting down our forests, we're paving the planet, we're poisoning the oceans. If we don't fill these holes in the bottom of the boat and the boat goes down, it doesn't matter where you go, where you want to hide, how you, far you get off the grid, doesn't matter. Whole boat goes down, done, game over. So the bottom line, we start with stopping the most destructive activity of all, and that's weather warfare. And if we can bring it to light, I would argue, Michael, we can bring it to a halt as people participating in their families as well, understand what they're participating in and they stand down. That is our best chance. If we could expose what's happening in our skies, I would argue there would be a shockwave around the world and the fur would fly. We would have people taking the streets with their proverbial pitchforks and torches, understanding that they've been under assault this entire time. We're at a point there when no climate cataclysm can be blamed on nature anymore and we need to reach that point and, it, and again the i'm not negating the other forms of human destructive activity we have child laborers in third world countries tearing apart their environment for the trace minerals for so-called environmentally friendly vehicles and that's what an incredible hypocrisy that whole scenario is but the bottom line is we have to stop this destruction of the planet. We have to allow the planet to respond on its own to the damage done, or we are on a very limited time horizon. So it's, it's all the above. We need to take every step we can, but everybody's in a position to make a difference in regard to reaching this critical mass of awareness. You, rake, you wake up your own circle. You ask those you wake up to do the same. We can make this equation exponential in the right direction instead of the exponentially in the wrong direction as it is right now. If we can accomplish that, we can at least buy time, and that's worth fighting for. Well, I, I know a lot of conventional politicians and parties around the world are, are kind of focused on climate change in terms of greenhouse gases. Is that really a distraction from the real problem that you've been describing? No, I would argue it's not, but it's a hypocrisy on their part, immense hypocrisy, because there can be no legitimate discussion about climate anything from any perspective without addressing climate engineering first and foremost. Going through 100 million barrels of carbon fuel a day is a problem. And that energy production is declining too. Many people don't realize this, Michael, but if we look at statistics, in the year 1900, one barrel of energy, the, the energy contained in one barrel of carbon fuel was enough to get 100 more out of the ground. Now that equation is one for five, a 95% reduction. The energy it takes to recover energy is much, much higher now. So uh, this, this whole equation is tilting in the wrong direction. And that changing of atmospheric chemistry, when we're putting all that into the atmosphere, and then that triggers other feedback loops like the methane release. Again, Siberian methane craters, encourage your listeners to search that. This is thawing methane deposits that are literally exploding into the atmosphere. It triggers all these downstream cascading effects. All of this is a part of the problem, but the bottom line is the intentional intervention in the climate system is the biggest problem of all. If we can fix that, expose that, the, 
the gravity, the severity of what we face becomes apparent to populations. And now perhaps we see some bridge building occurring. We see some uniting of the tribes occurring with all those from all sides of different demographics, understanding that we are all fighting for our lives. We need to, we need to march together. So where do people go, uh, Dane, to get more information about your work and, and what can they look forward to in terms of any future documentaries? We're not, we don't have anything else planned at this point. We're using the dimming as our primary tool. We poured everything into that. But geoengineeringwatch.org is a data repository, engineering wildfire section, engineering drought section. We have the uh, various, the, the testing data we have on the top toolbar as well. All that's available. It's, it's non-political. It's commercial free. We don't have ads on our site at all. We're simply trying to help bring this issue to light. And this is, this is my life's mission, Michael. I will do this until I take my last breath. I, I live for the day when these programs are fully exposed and halted. But I encourage listeners to look at the wider horizon. L literally, the Chinese news is exponentially better than U.S. media televised news. You, you don't see anything about environmental anything on our news, nothing. And it's pretty sad to say that the Chinese news is 10 times better than U.S. news. They're showing how bad the ecosystem collapse scenario is around the globe, while U.S. media shows nothing but political theater. In regard to waking up others, too, we offer geoengineeringwatch.org. We try to offer printed materials and on our shirts and things to start a conversation on this issue. It's just something we have tried to provide so that activists have a tool so they don't feel unarmed. And we, we pass our printed materials on for less than our cost of producing and shipping. We just want to get them into circulation. But we do have tools on the homepage of geoengineeringwatch.org. And that can make it much easier to open people's willingness to look at this issue as opposed to pointing at the sky and, and ranting. So we're, we're trying to help provide these tools. We're hoping that many others help us to carry this torch forward. Well, thank you, Dane, for your incredible research and your dedication to helping the planet survive uh, these, these challenges. Uh, uh, it's incredible that you've been doing this for over 20 years now. And uh, you know, wish you the best and uh, hope uh, people follow up and support your geoengineering uh, research and activism and visit your website and subscribe. So thank you. Thank you, Michael. Without voices like yours to help us uh, disseminate our data to a wider audience, uh, we wouldn't be able to make the progress we've made. So the deepest gratitude to you as well for all your work. You have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com. Thank you.